Hi, everyone, and welcome to a Country First Conversation, as we are excited to continue this new series and allow you a chance to participate and be a part of the conversation in choosing country over party. My name is Matt Wildewald. Our guest, as always, is Representative Adam Kinzinger of the 16th District in Illinois, who founded Country First as a home for principled Americans who are tired of the poisonous extremism that has taken over our beloved nation. So this week I launched a video called No Fear, and it's focused on the destructive role of fear in politics and the need to reject it. Uh, I'd encourage if you haven't to to join the movement and also visit that, uh, go see that video. The website is countryfirst uh, with the number one dot com. Today in particular, I'm super excited. Uh, I have a, a good friend of mine here that uh, is really the person that introduced me to the role of fear uh, both in conflict and in society and really opened my eyes and, and actually many others that have talked with him in terms of, you know, what role fear is playing in this country. So his name is Jamie Winship. So Jamie and his wife, Donna, they live in Seattle. Uh, he has decades of experience in bringing peaceful solutions to some of the world's highest conflict areas. He started with a distinguished career in law enforcement uh, in Metro Washington, D.C., and his unconventional conventional efforts to bring about society and racial reconciliation have led him to places like Indonesia, like Jordan, Iraq, Palestine, Israel, and back to the U.S. Uh, in recent years, he's worked with leaders in a variety of sectors, from police departments to fro- pro football teams to churches and other faith-based organizations. I gotta tell you, his bio is so incredible, and you'll hear about some of those experiences as we talk today. But the reason he's here with us is because his background is so unique on the topic of fear. And I think discussing fear in American society and how it fuels that conflict and anger, it's really important to break down. So that's why we brought him here today. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Adam, how are you? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. How are you guys uh, holding up in all this time we got? Yeah, interesting time. Lots of fear, lots of fear-based decision-making going on. And that's, you know, as we'll get into is the reason for most of this conflict that we're seeing and experiencing. Yeah, that's right. So you have an amazing story or two to share with us. You've been in some really crazy situations. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how you ended up working abroad dealing with conflict. What led to that? Yeah, well, um, I started I started in the police department and um, that was always what I wanted to do. And um, so I went to went to university, met my wife, got married, went into, straight into the academy, police academy. And really, it was there, I guess, that um, I started I started just wondering at, at, a, at a deeper level, you know, just with day to day police work. Um, what, what was there any way really to uh, impact the people I was coming in contact with long term, as opposed to just, you know, arresting people or um, just going back to domestic disputes, you know, week after week after week, putting people in a system, running into them again a year later, like, was there really a way, what was the cause of all of this? What was, was there some uh, primary issue that we could deal with that would actually uh, m- make uh, 
us as police officers and the community feel like we're really we're really making some something happen here. There's really some transformation instead of becoming cynical and frustrated and bitter and and all of those things that come out of um, compulsive repetition, which which uh, is what a lot of what I was doing was. So in that in that in those five years I spent in that, I just really started. I didn't, there's nowhere really to go to ask these kind of questions. I didn't, the police academy didn't teach, you know, they taught, they trained us in how to handle scenarios. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer. And so even in church, they didn't really deal with issues that I was dealing with as a police officer. It's like they were two distinct worlds and neither of them seemed to be helpful in dealing with what was causing this. What, why is this neighborhood in such, um, conflict and I was running into the same issues whether I was working in a lower economic neighborhood or a wealthy neighborhood the, there were the same reasons for conflict in both neighborhoods and so um, I really just I started looking anywhere I could to find ways to deal with these problems um, and one of the things I did which so sounds really strange of course is that I started I started asking God <laughs> Uh, if if there was a way that God could open up my mind to think in different ways, it was kind of funny. It was quite naive at the time, but you know my understanding of religion was that you know God's mostly disappointed in me, and um, and I just the main thing for me is to walk the straight and narrow. And re and really the issue was in my own walk with God, it was fear based actually. Yeah. And so anyway, so I started investigating that and I started having these ideas about things I could try in the police department, um, like different ways to talk to people uh, about faith, about um, transformation, um, things that I thought would had really impacted my life that would impact their life. My problem was that in the police department, you weren't allowed to talk about those kinds of things. <laughs> I, I, so it's, you know, because we don't have a lot of time here. So I want, I want to kind of get this theme out early is fear is America's enemy. When, when, if I went to the police department and said, hey, I found if I talk to people this way, it actually helps end the domestic violence in the homes that we're going into. The, they would agree that it worked, but they wouldn't let me do it because of their own fear. Because, well, if we do this, you know, then we could, th these things could happen, the part department could be liable. And so every time I went to like make a, a, a decision to, to change a policy or something, I would run into that kind of fear. So then I decided, well, I'm just going to do it on my own and see if there was a way to incorporate these, this different way of viewing things and handling things in a way that um, actually caused the police department to have to have a better impact actually where my sergeant and up the command actually they actually got credit for it <laughs> so here's another fear here's another fear am I gonna am I gonna spend my police career doing things that that I don't get credit for that only my supervisors get credit for um, Again, that's another thing like, wow, is that worth it? Should I do that? Or, or is it about my career and getting promoted and all that? So I just started to, I just attempted certain practices um, and I, I can give you details of it. But as I did it, I realized um, that actually this is far more effective than just go out, lock up bad guys, um, that kind of thing. This was far more effective 
And I started to discover the reason why there was such conflict in the houses I went into. The basis for that conflict really was their own fear, the fear of the individuals I was dealing with. Um, and if I could figure out how to help them be released of that fear, then the conflict diminished, right? So, so the, the challenge was as a police officer coming to a house, I myself produce fear. Like I'm a producer yeah, of fear true. just by being there um, because, because of you know how I look and the uniform I'm wearing and what I represent to the community that I'm in. Um, and so it was just like this fear all around. It was like impossible to do anything long-term and with any long-term effectiveness in it because everyone was, everyone was self-protecting and self-promoting, which is the, the, the signs of fear is the person involved um, once they start self-protecting and self-promoting, then there's no possibility for reconciliation or transformation, mm. right? So I, so I was just practicing, how could I, I would, you'd have to empathize with the other person. Like, why is this, what is the source of this person's fear? And then how can I speak into that fear in a way that would, would actually resolve the conflict? So that's what I started practicing. And, and the practices um, would often put my career in jeopardy. I mean, they just would because it because companies and departments are also self-protecting and self-promoting. It's it's sort of what we do. You know, we learn very I young. I can relate to this right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you can. I mean, you just read the news and you can watch people take a stand on something one day and two weeks later they're gone. You know, it's yeah. vanished. There it is. There it is. So, um, so I, the more I did that, actually, what happened was I actually got promoted. I, I, it actually, um, pre, the, the result of it was so positive that uh, I was promoted and I was officer of the year. And, and so, I mean, I thought, wow, I've really, you know, kind of figured out how to do this in such a way that, that you know, maybe I'll end up being chief of police or something. But then they, then they let me start training rookies um, in, in what I was doing. And so then I had to formulate a way to, well, how do, you, how do I articulate this to a rookie police officer, what I'm talking about? And which meant that that rookie police officer now had to learn how to get rid of their own fear, deal with their own mm -hmm. fear. So, so as a police officer, if I come into a situation in fear, and I don't mean, I don't mean I'm afraid to die and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm afraid to do something wrong. I'm afraid to get in trouble. I'm afraid to get sued. Those, those kinds of things. I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. These kinds of things that start to govern your decision-making process before you've taken one step. You haven't, you haven't done anything yet, but this is the kind of fear level that dictates your decision-making process into, I, I, it's, it's number one in this, whatever happens here, number one is me. Like my self-protection, my self-promotion is number one then it goes down from that. And so when, if you're doing that in a situation, it's very hard to think creatively, very difficult to think creatively, um, which yeah, is- because you're using did. kind of like at that point, it's like what's worked in the past, what will work in the future versus being able to get outside of that box and say, you know, maybe maybe there is a creative way that just hasn't That's been right. the landmark of the past. That's right. And so, yeah, and so the, of course, the, the, the beginning of that journey is, is, to, is to ask yourself, 
what am I afraid of? What am I really afraid of? So if, if, if I'm a, because before I'm a police officer, I'm just a human being. So, you know, another one of our, the big topics we deal with is identity. Police officer is not an identity. It's a, it's a vocation. It's a, it's a job. But once police officer becomes my identity, then I cannot lose that job. I cannot lose it. If I lose the job, I've lost everything about who I am. Um, that kind of person cannot be creative in the job because they have to protect the job. So if I get my identity from my vocation, whatever it is, or role in life, then I have to protect that role or that vocation or that image with everything that I have, which again, produces separation. That's, that's all it can produce is separateness because the other people are doing it as well. So we have, a, we have people that are interacting, but mostly what they're doing is self-protecting and self-promoting because um, they're, they're, they feel like they're going to lose something in the process, that they're going to be weak and they're going to lose something. So can yeah. I ask you, you, you? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Please, no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, so this is me, I just want to give you an example. This is one I use a lot. And, and I know for, if for police officers or current or former, this is a, this is, they'll understand the risk involved in this. And they might even say it was the dumbest thing you could possibly do or, but so I, just in one example, it, but it was a, it was a case that really kind of made me um, career wise was I was working um, in plain clothes on Christmas Eve. And I, I had was working investigator level, detective level. And um, so, and I was I'd coming back from court and the, the radio, the beep tones come out on the radio for a burglary in progress. And I'm right, I'm right near the, where it is. And, and I'm driving on this overpass above the apartment complex where this um, burglary in progress has happened. They give a description of the suspect and I can see the guy, the suspect fitting the description coming down behind the apartment complex into this sort of wooded area. And he's, he's carrying the property on the lookout. And at the same time, I can see a uniformed police officer coming around the corner and the suspect sees the police officer, but the police officer doesn't see the guy. And the guy is, is a big, big guy. And I'm pretty sure that, that um, there's gonna be a confrontation and the police officer doesn't see it. So I jump out of my car, I run down the hill, down the embankment towards, and I'm yelling to the police officer to like pay attention. But before I can get there, the suspect just clobbers the policeman when he comes around the corner, just punches him and knocks him down. Um, and, then I, and then I run up on the scene and the suspect just drops everything, throws up his hands, you know, he immediately um, submits I arrest him, but he, but he was a pretty good punch on the officer, the uniformed officer. So, um, so I make the arrest, I call the rescue squad comes, checks out the officer. And um, now in that scenario, the, the, the way that scenario works and the suspect was a black male. And the only reason I'm saying that is because of, I want you to know that in the decision-making process. So in that scenario, and this is in 1980, this is in the 80s, to give perspective, 1985 maybe. Um, so I'm walking the guy to my car, to my cruiser. I put him in the cruiser, the suspect, and he's telling me, he's apologizing to me for hitting the officer. And he starts to tell me that he, he's never done a burglary before. He's only doing it because his wife's in law school. 
he actually lives in that. This is a low-income neighborhood, subsidized neighborhood. He lives in the neighborhood, and he starts telling me this long story, which, in my, uh, you know, in my profession, would be like, oh yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Your wife's in law school, sure, sure. Um, you you assaulted a police officer. Um, this is, and so in that scenario, then what I would do is to take the suspect to the precinct of the officer that was assaulted and give him to that precinct. Um, that's just the normal practice. Nothing written down about that. That's just the normal pra practice. So I'm driving him. We're driving to the other precinct, and he's telling. He keeps telling me this story. My wife's in law school. We don't have any money. I want to give her a Christmas present. I was walking by this apartment. I saw the door was unlocked. I, you know, I went in there, took the property. Um, I'm really sorry. Never been arrested before. I'm driving and I'm listening to him. So here's the thing. Okay, so I think. Okay, I know what to do. Training-wise, I know what to do, but I have a lot of discretion. And so I think, okay, I could, I mean, obviously I'm gonna take this guy, we're gonna arrest him, we're gonna incarcerate him, but is there is there another way to handle this? Like, what if he's telling the truth? Is there another way to handle this that has a greater outcome than we locked him up, he's going in for, you know, burglary charge, it's a first-time offense, I don't know. And I have this idea and it's very strong in me. And it's an idea that could only come out of, and this sounds really strange, but it's what I discovered. It, what I'm gonna do comes from a place of love. Now here's the thing about love. Love is the only thing that takes away fear. It's the only thing that takes away fear is love. Nothing, security can't take away fear. Money can't, nothing can take away fear. Power doesn't take away fear. The only thing that can take away fear is for a person to know they're loved. Once they understand their love, that is security. That is power. That is what they need. Once they understand their love, there's not a real reason to fight. So, um, but how do you demonstrate that love towards another person? The only way you can do it is by sacrificing on their behalf. So, um, so like for you, Adam, to stand up and say, hey, I'm going to take a stand for these things that I believe, you know that you're doing, it's, it's called self-emptying. You know that what you're doing can politically really hurt you, mm. but, you're, but that's, that's what gives power to your decision. Not that you're making some big stand, that what you're doing is self-emptying. And that is, the, that is what we discovered works in conflict is is not how badly can I beat the other person? We all know that doesn't work. It just continues. What works is what can we do to take away the fear of the person that produces conflict? If, if, a, if, a, if a young kid doesn't have to join a gang because they know they're loved and secure without the gang, they won't join the gang. Yeah. But yeah, if there's a gang can provide safety and, and, and love, right? And that's right. Absolutely. So that's what kids are looking for. Belonging, security, love, brotherhood, all of that stuff. Right. And so, um, but where are they going to find it? You know, where are they going to find it? So in this scenario, I had this idea um, to, and it was very strong in me. So you, whatever, whatever you believe God or love or whatever because it's not my own idea it's 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 further up in the creative process than i would have just come up with and it's and so i i i decide to de-arrest him so I, and i know <laughs> i know this is yet yeah, to de-arrest now i know i know 
like in I'm having this debate in my own mind if I de-arrest this guy very very much could be the end of my career um but if I de-arrest him it could be it could be life-changing for him and who knows who else in his community so what's more important in this decision making me and my career or him and his future and there's there, the only the only thing I can do in this scenario as humans is say I'm more important than him or he's more important than me right now at this moment. And I think that's a decision we have to make all the time. Um, so so anyway, I pull over and I, I get him out of the car and I say, look, I unhandcuff him and I said, listen, I want you to I don't know your name yet. I don't know. I have any information on you yet. I'm going to I'm going to cut you loose. Um, and it's just, it's the right thing to do. He, he says, to, he tells me he thinks it's a bad idea. That's what he, he says to me, you're, you're, this is a bad idea. He thinks, Are you sure he thinks dude? yeah, he thinks that he thinks I'm actually going to release him and then hurt him. Say he fled. That's what he thinks. See, because he knows it's like, he knows the game. No police officer is just going to like sacrifice their career for me. Like he knows that's never going to happen. Um, but I say to him, I said, no, I'm serious. I'm, I'm going to release you because I think it's the right thing to do. Um, and, and I want you just to walk away from me and I will just handle this from here on out. Because we had the property recovered, you know, all the stuff. We take it back to the person who had it stolen from him. We have to have to work on the assault on the officer. But I figured I would go deal with the officer. But I felt pretty certain I would lose my job, but I knew it was the right thing to do. So I de-arrest him. He stands there. I just drive away, get to my precinct, um, go to my captain to, of our precinct and tell him what happened. And he's like, you know, he's pretty upset with the decision. <laughs> and, uh, but this is what he says to me. He says, he said, not, he said, I've Jamie, I've seen you do strange things in the past and they've seemed to work out. I will give you, we'll see how this goes for 30 days or something like that. And if it, if this doesn't go well, you know, we're going to have another conversation see about you. your future. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I didn't have to wait 30 days because what happened was, I mean, I had to go, I had to go meet with the other officer who got hit, explain myself to him, ask him to like uh, be patient with the situation that it wasn't just over. There was more to it. And he agreed. He was, you know, he, he came around. Um, and so I made peace with everybody. But two weeks, two weeks after that, I released that guy. So that was Christmas Eve. Two weeks after I released him, he calls into our station, our precinct, the guy I released. And he says to me, he, he just, he, I can, I recognize his voice immediately. And he says, uh, he goes, I want you to do something. I, he said at, at midnight tonight or some, some fairly specific time, he said at, the, at this intersection, there's going to be a black Porsche coming through that intersection. Pull him over and search his trunk. And I'm like, okay. So I get one of the plainclothes guys, my partner, and we go out there and we sit. Sure enough, we sit on that intersection and sure enough, this black Porsche comes through. We pull it over, the guy consents to a search, it's loaded with drugs. Um, so we got a huge arrest out of that. And so what happens is the guy who I de-arrested, that was his, he had never been arrested before. His wife was in fact in Howard Law School in DC. Wow. Um, everything he said was true. And he was, he made the mistake of, he wanted to give his wife a VCR back in the day and he saw one and stole it. And 
Um, but everything he said was true. And so he said to me, he said, no one's ever given, given me a break like that before. And he said, I, I don't like the evil that's in my community. And so if you'll let me, I will help you if we work together to get rid of what's evil in my community. Wow. And so he and I started this thing together, but it got huge. We were making arrests all up and down the East Coast, all kinds of heat. That guy knew everything that was happening everywhere. But he, he was interested in battling evil. He wasn't interested in just locking up people. And so we worked together for almost a year wow. in that process. And, and at the end of the time, uh, the arrests got so um, big that we, the DEA was involved and all of this. I realized that his life was, gonna, it was in danger now because of who we were getting to. And so I told him one day, I said, I, I said I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work one more week with you and then we're going to be finished. And then I went to my captain and I said, can we, I want to give a presentation to crime solvers about what this guy's done. Um, and so he said, no, you can't, police aren't allowed in the crime solvers. And I just kept hassling until he finally got me into a meeting. And I, I went in there with a whiteboard and I just illustrated all the arrests we'd have made over 12 months because of this one guy and the areas that we were able to clean up and the drugs we were able to get rid of. And it, I said, um, I think what we ought to do is pay his wife's tuition at Howard Law School no. as, a, as a thanks uh -huh. to him. Yeah. And that's what they did. They agreed. And so the last time I saw him, I gave him the money to, to pay for his wife's tuition and, um, and said, I'll never want to see you ever again. Never want to talk to you again. Good luck. Have a great future. Thanks for your help. It's been a pleasure and honor knowing you. And that was it. We parted ways. What, I, what, that, what that story shows is what happens when we look at another person and say, okay, this guy's against me in every way. And so I'm going to do everything I can to, you know, ruin them or hurt them. It's like, what can I do? What can I do? What fear has got this guy in this position? What can we do to take away that fear? And what happens when he's not afraid anymore? What would happen? And this guy was, was transformed by it, but so was I. And so was um, our precinct in the way we thought about how we arrest and who we arrest. So that, that, that because of that case, and some others like it, then I was approached um, by some guys in the US government who wanted to hear why I thought that way and how I thought that way. And would I be interested in doing that kind of work in other countries? So that's how that went. Wow. So that one decision, um, you know, really it's like dropping the pebble in the water kind of thing. That one decision just starts this ripple effect um, it's just, just me and that guy on a street one day being human together and deciding like we're not gonna keep we're not gonna keep doing this thing anymore. Let's figure about another way to handle it. And uh, there's a there's a lot of power in that. You are listening to a country first conversation with Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. Our guest today is Jamie Winship. Make sure you go to our website at countryfirst.com. That's with a one S-T, countryfirst.com. And make sure you're following us on all of our social media channels, on Facebook and Twitter as well. When you think about politics today, for instance, and what's going on, I mean, 
You know, I have people all the time that'll say to me, you know, why are you doing this country first thing? It's never going to change, right? Everybody hates each other. People that, you know, bristle when they see somebody that thinks different than them and they make assumptions and that person's like not human. And the fear, I think, has just gripped people so much that we're unable now out of our fears to get out of this moment. So, you know, you mentioned early on that, you know, fear causes separation, and I think when we when we talk about, you know, hate crimes going up, more people are buying guns, there's unrest everywhere. You know, we've seen these extremist groups become more emboldened. We saw obviously what we saw um, on January 6th. It's all, it's all very clearly a sign of fear, but I think also separation. What's your thoughts on that in terms of the fear and the separation in the country? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, there's, there's uh, re- really good stuff written on this, lots of good resources on this topic, but... Um, the way we think about it is for every person, like every person that's on this uh, in this chat right now um, ha- is working with two stories. They're, they're working with their own story, their own identity, unique identity, but that identity is inside of a world story. So, so you have to be super conscious of both stories. So for many people, they don't actually know who they really are. So they're getting their identity from their affiliation with groups, religions, teams, gangs, whatever. They're getting their identity from a team, we call it. Whatever the name of that team is, that's where they're gaining their identity because they don't have their own sense of identity. So they've got to find a group to affiliate with. And then once they're in that group and they get their identity from that group, they're afraid to ever leave that group, like they're in it. And so they'll defend the group, even though they know the group's not correct. They, even though they've got evidence, wow, maybe I was wrong about this group, they still will defend it. So then rational discussion goes out the window because now you're now you're tapping on identity. So that's the you story. So you have to start there. But the world story that we see ourselves in is, is Oh, the world story that we're in is a separation world story. That's what that's the worldview that that especially in America we have is we're in a separation world story. So that means separation seems like the wisest thing to do in, in this worldview. The separation worldview has four pillars and there's great economic. This is economic theory. Actually, there's great writers on this economic theory. Um, but the separation worldview is built on scarcity. The the scarcity idea is that there's not enough for all of us. As soon as a group of people realize there's not enough for all of them, they'll start self-protecting and self-promoting. As soon as they believe it, there's not enough for me and you. So I can't really be for you. I might tolerate you, but I can't help or hope you succeed because you're going to take a piece of what probably would be mine. You almost right. like descend on the hierarchy of needs then at that point, right? Now you're just down to basic survival. That's right. Exactly right. And so in a separation model, the separation model then depends on a worldview of certainty. So if there's a limited pie and I go to get it, I have to be absolutely certain on, the, on, on how to get it. So once you move into certitude and certainty, again, you're in a position where you can never be wrong. Because if I'm wrong, then I might I might lose a piece of the pie. So I've got to know positively be certain. Um, and you see this in religion. It's like you, you, it's not you, the certain. You got to say this exact prayer or this thing doesn't work. Yeah. And you got to say it the way we tell you to say it. 
Because if you don't say it the way we tell you to say it, you're out. You lose your piece of heaven or the kingdom or whatever. But these guys, these other guys over here, they're saying it a different way. Yeah, they're wrong. And, and it's like creates separation, right? And then so certainty means then you have to live in a society that's bent on perfectionism. So all these just lead to one another, to perfection. So once, you, once you're into perfectionism, um, then you can never fail. You, you're not allowed to fail because failure is out. You've got to do it right. You better get it right um, because someone else is going to get it right and you're going to lose. And then perfectionism um, leads into self-centeredness or self-interest. So you have a separation model. It's built on, it's built on certainty, perfectionism, and self-interest. Scarcity, sorry, scarcity, perfection, certainty, and self-interest. That's what it's built on. The counter to that, the counter worldview to that is an abundance worldview. Like, you know what? There is enough for all of us. We don't need to be running around like there is enough for all of us. You don't have to join the gang. You don't have to, you, we don't have to, you know, trash that country. There's enough for all of us in, in that abundance or reconciliation worldview. It's built on abundance instead of scarcity, it's abundance. Instead of certitude, it's mystery. This life is built on mystery. We all know this is true. We act like we're certain about stuff, but this thing is a mystery. Neuroscience is a mystery. Biology is a mystery. All of it's a mystery. So it, mystery takes the pressure off. You gotta be absolutely 100% right about everything. And then mystery allows for fallibility. Like it's okay to fail. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to be wrong about what you thought. So we can come back and say, you know what? I used to believe this. I don't believe it anymore. That's it's, a great it's point. Okay. It's okay. And fallibility and mystery and reconciliation allow for the common good, not self-interest, common good. So I'm not afraid to look at my neighbor who's different than me in every way and go, you know what? There's enough for both of us. We can figure this thing out, but if we're afraid, if we're in a scarcity model, you and I must, we must be in conflict with one another. It happens between You know, you realize you're, you, you get swallowed up in this competition. And I just imagine, you know, there's probably, you know, I don't want to be at the end of my life laying in bed, you know, about to say goodbye and go to the next world and, and realize I spent the whole time competing and I didn't need to, you know, and, I think it's something we battle all the time. So let me just say, uh, if, if you're on this and you want to jump in, raise your hand, and uh, we'll go to questions here in a real quick second. Let me just ask you real quick, Jamie, before we go to questions. If uh, if you're talking in your own life and you're looking at like, we'd all love to change the political system right now immediately, but I've got to disinfect my own fear. Just in a very brief, what, what would you say would be your advice to somebody to say, how do you disinfect your own fear in a fearful moment? Yeah. So, okay. So one thing about fear to remember is that it, 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 the research shows that humans only have two and eight fears. That's the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. So that's, those are our two hardwired fears and they're survival fears and they're, they're there to protect us. Other than that, all other fears learned. So any other fear you have other than falling off a cliff or a bomb exploding in your yard is learn, you learn it. So we have to say, when I'm afraid of X happening, it means someone taught you to be afraid of that. So it's a good thing when you feel fear or stress or anxiety, whatever your word is for fear, the question is to, to identify the fear. I am afraid, we do this all the time in groups. I am afraid that I'm gonna, fail in this project. 
Okay, and so then you then we make the person say an identity statement. Okay, what happens if you fail in the project? Then what are you? Then I am a failure. There's the false identity right there. I am a failure. And a person, when they hit that fear of I am a failure, they're not learning that today. They're, that's a statement that they learned many years ago about themselves. And so we just ask them, okay, let's think. When's the first time in your life someone told you you were a failure because you weren't born thinking that? You learned that. Or, or, or I am an imposter or I am ugly or I am overweight or whatever those things are, you were told these things and your identity becomes that negative statement. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not good in front of people. These are all statements people make about themselves as if they're normal, but they're not true and they were learned. And so then we like, where did you learn that false identity? And then, and then what's the truth about that? Who, what's the truth about you? Once a person understands the truth of their identity, they can work through any fear. They can absolutely work through any fear. And that allows them to be creative and to be creative thinkers and move to the prefrontal cortex out of the reptilian brain. So that's a short answer to that. What's your What's your website, by the way? Identitymethod.com. I watch all your stuff on YouTube too. So if people get a chance, go you know look up Jamie Winship on YouTube. So the key for an individual is to is to truth tell to tell the truth. Truth, you know, truth brings freedom. So if, if a person, if a person is fearful of another person or group, uh, that person first has to be able to tell the truth about their own fear, which is really difficult for people to do. A lot of times people don't even know it. They don't even understand what the truth is. So if, so if, if I say, um, I dislike a certain group of people, um, the, then my question is like, where did I learn that? Why do I dislike that group of people? You, as you're right, Lisa, that's going to come down to really in truth telling, I'm afraid of them. I'm afraid of them. And then why are you afraid of them? Because they're going to take my neighborhood. They're going to take my country. It's this in the, into that scarcity model, but this, the, the pattern we use or the formula we use in pretty hostile groups, it's, it's very interesting to watch it happen, is a, it's kind of a circle. It's called truth tell, mind change, form change. If the person will truth tell, any person, any human, if they will tell the truth about what they're afraid of and what they really believe about themselves, it allows for mind change to occur, right? If they won't tell the truth, listen, nothing's ever going to change if we won't tell the truth. But truth telling is what we have to get to. And then that allows for mind change, for a person to actually change their mind and go, oh, yeah, oh, I see it is because I'm afraid or it's not really it, that is the cause. I'm learned I learned to be afraid from whatever my parents are a bad experience. And then that allows for form change. Then we can start changing the forms of things. Currently, what we do is just try and change the form of things with no mind change involved. That's why it doesn't work. So truth tell mind change form change or or if you uh, if you understand the scriptures it's confession which truth tell repentance which means mind change and metamorphe which is transforming systems so that's the process you would use but it starts with the individual telling the truth and i think that's key too is just tell the truth and you know people may not listen right away but when you're when the counter narrative is all lies and division and stuff you got to have some truth in there to have any shot
If you haven't had a chance to visit the website, we invite you to do so. Just go to countryfirst.com. That's with a one S-T in the URL. That's countryfirst.com. And now we continue our conversation with Adam Kinzinger and Jamie Winship. Really just when it comes to the country and healing, um, you know, first off, we always want justice to be done. Justice should be uh, blind to color, blind to party, blind to, you know, socioeconomic status. Uh, but then I think just we as a country, Republican, Democrat, in, in, in between or outside, just coming back to understanding that, you know, we are in this country together. We're in this thing together. You know, as a pilot, I fly all over the country and there's so much land with nobody on it. And yet there's this feeling, like you talk about, Jamie, that if new people come here, we're going to lose X, Y, and Z. You know, But then you look at a country like China with a billion and a half people and you know, how do you compete with them economically when you're not growing, when you're just saying this is all mine? And uh, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Jamie, too, in terms of, you know, just I, I would call it like a fear of what could possibly be, you know, coming up with those scenarios. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's it's as it's like the scarcity model that we're talking about. I think that I think about that all the time. What could we if we were creatively thinking about um there you go. Got you. Go ahead, sir. Yeah. No, if you were if we're creatively thinking about, um, you know, immigrant population and that that all of that in a creative way, there's there's lots of things that could be done to really, really things beneficial to everyone involved. But when you're when fear is the main rhetoric. Um, yeah, there's just no creativity. I mean, anyone, will, any cognitive scientist will tell you that fear shuts down creativity and and Fear also can can motivate people, as we've seen. But oh, it's really uh, compelling. It's compelling. That's right. So either we can go into a room and try and make the room afraid, or we can go into a room to take their fear away. And one produces conflict and separation, guaranteed, and the other, the other promises uh, an, a chance at reconciliation and unity and working together and listening to different viewpoints. Yeah. When I was being um, trained overseas in the different places we worked over there, um, the guy that trained me used to always say to me, the first, the first goal of any conversation is to get the other person's fists down. Once their fists are, fists are down, you can, there's, you can have a very deep and interesting conversation. So the question is, how do you get a person's fist down? And we were working in scenarios where um, we were foreigners, we were the wrong religion, we were the wrong country, everything about us spelled conflict and fear to the person or the group we were dealing with. So how do you get another human being to drop their fist when even everything about us represented threat to them? Um, and the way to do that, it's really beautiful actually, humans are really amazing, beautiful creations. Um, if I, when I was in a room with police officers, I asked them before I started this process with them, I said, how many of you are, are dealing with fear right at this moment? And none of them raised their hand. Of course not. You know, we're not afraid of anything. You know, we're, you know, we're not afraid. We're going out there. And then I said, okay, good, because I'm going to ask you all one question. And when, and when I ask this question, I'm going to go one by one through the room and you have to tell the truth. Suddenly the whole room is in fear. <laughs> They're terrified. They're not afraid to die, go on the firing line, all that stuff. They are afraid to tell the truth because they don't know what I'm going to ask them. 
And, and, and this is my whole point. And so my question to them is like I've been saying, I just said, okay, we're going to go by one by one. What's the main negative emotion you deal with on a regular basis? Just tell the truth. Um, and so I went one by one through the room, 50, 50 officers in the room. And the answer for every one of them was fear at some level. N again, not afraid to die, not afraid to get in a fight, none of that. But fear of failure, fear of being a bad father or mother, fear of being a bad partner in marriage, all these deep fears that affect everything else. And so once they all said it, it's really fast. It reconciled the room because they were all agreeing with one another on the truth that we all are dealing with fear pretty regularly. So once they, once they did that, told the truth about that, I said, okay, tell the, let's, what are you afraid of? What, what, say it to the room. What are you afraid of? And then, you know, they started saying, I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of, of um, being, one of them said, I'm afraid of being afraid. I'm, I'm afraid of, of talking to my kids. I'm afraid of like, these, these deep human fears that we just cover up. But each time someone told the truth, then the rest of the room felt like, wow, they're exact, they were all the same. And it didn't matter, gender didn't matter, race didn't matter, religion didn't matter. We were all unifying in truth telling. So then, and then it just, when's the first time you, you, you learned you were a failure? Who's the first person that called you a failure? And then you should see people start crying. Cause then they're like, well, yeah, I remember the day my dad said I was no good or my teacher said I was you know, a piece of crap. And everyone in the room can empathize with each other on this. They all, now it's like we're one body now. We're one group. We all are afraid. We all feel like we're not good enough. We all feel like, you know, this whole thing about being apex predators, you know, the best of the best that we hear and from, you know, professional coaching and all that is, is really nonsense. We're never good enough. We're not enough. We never feel like we're enough. And that's where humans can really, will really bond together and then once they started saying out loud, where did you learn your failure? Where did you learn that you'll, you'll never be good enough? They started saying that to each other. Then we could reverse it and say, okay, let's, let's talk about who you really are. Let's build away from the lie and build into what's true. But once people are, are free to tell the truth about themselves, they are actually eager to do it. It, it. Whether in that context or in a Muslim country, it didn't matter. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I just think about like, you know, as a guy, you're sitting around the fire with the guys, you know, being cool, drinking beer, and then you eventually get into serious conversations about your vulnerabilities. And those are always the nights you remember the most, you know. The, you, once you understand, once you understand that the person across the aisle from you or whoever is in, whoever's in conflict with you, once you recognize their motivation is not against you personally, but it is their own fear, it's the kind of thing where you can you can have mercy on them because they don't know what they're doing. I mean, you know, it's it's people what they're doing is not like what they're laying in bed going, what's the most evil thing I can do? Most people. Um, but it's it's so whatever they're whatever they're doing they're they can explain why they're doing it. And it makes sense to them, even though it's awful. So what you what, when you're talking to that other person. Um, your goal is to attack their fear in a way to help them. And, the, and then again, the way to do that, and this is what I keep emphasizing, is I don't care who I'm talking to, what group they're from, what, what religious background they're from, how they identify in any way. Human fear is at its root 
based in fear and a wrong view of themselves. That's actually where it comes from. A, a false, a wrong view of themselves, a really wrong view of the, of the world that they're in, and, and, the, and a wrong view of others. That's, that's what, what the fear is centered in. And so if you can help people recognize the source of their fear, not, they will not only you know, become less confrontation with you, they'll actually become helpful to you. Um, and so, I mean, that's the most I can tell you in this sh short amount of time, but I, I go after the fear in people that I'm talking to all the time. I'm like, how does that make you feel? How does that? How does it make you feel that they're that they're voting against you? How does it make you feel? Get down into you, their identity. Does it make you feel like you're a failure? That you're losing? Does it make you feel like a loser? These are all ways they're identifying themselves that produce fear, that produce conflict. I think part of the issue with some of that is, you know, look if you think about party leaders and politicians, they're fearful. They're fearful that they don't know what's next. They're going to lose their jobs. There's and as Jamie talks about, they're going to lose their identity, right? If you're a U.S. congressman or you're a state rep or you're a party leader, you are now somebody on the basis of that title that you have. And if you don't know your true identity, boy, that is losing that is fearful. And, you know, this revolutionary idea of talking about country first and optimism and future focused when they have adapted to using fear because it's cheap and easy. Uh, Jamie, I'm going to give it, I'm going to pass to you, see if you have any kind of closing thoughts on where we go from here or just anything you wanted to say. And I really appreciate you being on here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, just, I just encourage everyone on here, number one, to realize how much a one person can make a difference. Like don't ever get overwhelmed with what is happening and think like it's just too big or there's too much, or there's too much hostility. One person makes a huge difference. I think Adam's doing that. Um, but the key is for you to understand who you are. Uh, so for someone like Tori, you don't get your identity from the success of your job. It doesn't come from that. You don't get identity from, from income and all of the status and you know how many Instagram hits you get or how many clubhouse followers you have. That's, not, that's, all, that's all the scarcity false model that we live in. Understand your own identity, understand where your identity comes from. And then once you ha have established that and understand that, then then help others talk to others in a way that helps them recognize what that recognize their fear, understand their fear and move out of it. And I, it, it's it it's amazing how it affects other humans. Well, thank you, Jamie. And again, it's uh, really amazing talking to you. And I just want to say personally, thank you for your friendship and your mentorship, because that is a lot of, uh, you probably hear yourself sprinkled throughout what I'm talking about because I think recognizing and disinfecting that fear is the way to, to recover the party and the country and, and, our, and our narrative. And I think we'll be successful. It's just going to be a process to get there. We hope you enjoyed our conversation today between Congressman Adam Kinzinger and Jamie Winship. If you haven't done so, make sure you go to our website at countryfirst.com. That's with a one ST in the URL, countryfirst.com. We have a brand new video up there. Make sure you take a look at it and make sure that you subscribe to receive all of the latest updates. My name is Matt Rodewald, and we will talk to you next time as we continue to put country over party.